everyone. This is Greg Drevenston, Editor-in-Chief at Rider Magazine and your host for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Eddie Braun. Braun is a Hollywood stuntman who has worked on hundreds of TV shows and feature films, including The Avengers, Transformers, and the Rush Hour Trilogy. In 2016, Braun successfully flew a rocket-powered vehicle over Snake River Canyon, completing the ultimate stunt that defeated the legendary Evil Knievel in the 1970s. A documentary about Braun's career called Stuntman is now available on Disney+. Plus. This is a great episode you're not going to want to miss. Eddie, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. How are you? Thank you for having me. Ah, it's an honor to have you on the show. So as a kid, when I was growing up in the 70s, I had an Evil Knievel lunchbox like nearly everybody did. And I was a big fan of the uh, TV show Fall Guy with Lee Majors. <laughs> so... I always thought being a stuntman would be a, a dream job. So how did you get started doing what you do? Well, I, uh, as a kid, you know, uh, I met Evil Knievel as a child and wow. that made such an impression on me. Uh, you know, when I met him, he, the man wore a cape, you know, and uh, much like all the other kids, everybody wanted to be like Evil Knievel. Um, so I met him at a, a racetrack in Gardena, California called Ascot Raceway, which is no longer there. But I met him as a kid. And from that point on, I didn't want to do anything but be like him. So, you know, I got into racing motorcycles as a kid. And that just led to um, stunts. I mean, I wanted to be a stuntman. So at 17 years old, I got a shot at being a stuntman and uh, kind of ran with it. So when you say you got a, sh a shot at being a stuntman, I mean, so had you been riding dirt bikes, street bikes, all yeah. of it? I, I did a little of every, I mean, I started off on, you know, I had my XR75. I started on minis and, and like, uh, you know, mini bikes before my Honda XR. And in fact, I remember cutting out Rider Magazine, which is so cool to be on the podcast because as a kid, like Rider Magazine, I would later cut pictures of Marty Smith out of the magazines. And I was a huge fan of Marty Smith back in the day. Um, but uh, I, being born and raised in Southern California, you know, Hollywood, basically, uh, I met a stuntman and he kind of let me hang around a little bit as a 16, 17 year old. And I finally, uh, you know, I, I, I was like a sponge. I kept my mouth shut and soaked in all the information. Um, and I got a shot at 17 years old of doing a stunt and that just led on from there. That's interesting. I always wondered how somebody becomes a stunt man because you know it's as uh, like I said, it sounds like you've got to meet somebody, you've got to be tried out. Right. Is that and you know these are things that you know we think is kind of uh, you know that they're dangerous and so forth. But how do you get involved in the whatever the training is or the uh, the the practice to make sure that you're doing stunts that look dangerous but they're actually pretty safe for the most part. Well, there, there is no one set way to become a stuntman. There's no like a uh, course you can take or there's no, I mean, there's certainly there's courses out there, uh, but it doesn't uh, guarantee that you're going to be a stuntman. Uh, it's, it comes down to relationships, who you know. And if you get the shot, you, you need to bring the goods. And what I mean by bringing the goods is, I think one of the, the most uh, important aspects of a stunt performer is the ability to listen and take instruction. Uh, you don't just go out there and do whatever you want, however you want, as big as you want. Uh, no one wants to be around that. 
um, being a stunt performer, you're you're part of a team, and sure. and uh, I think one of the most important things about being a stunt person is your work, plain and simple. You don't exaggerate something. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. No more, no less. Right. Uh, and as people start to gain confidence in you and your word, then you get more opportunities. So I would say that's the most important thing is, is your word. Well, it's interesting because, you know, as, as sensational as stunts may look once they are on a TV show or in a movie or something, you're a professional. You've got to do exactly what is expected to get a particular shot. So I imagine, yeah, it's not about showboating. I mean, you're trying to make it look as, as realistic as possible, but yeah, you're trying to do it as accurately and as safely as possible. Well, Greg, that leads into one of the things that I see. I call myself, and I'm very proud to call myself, a professional stuntman. There is a very clear difference between being a daredevil and being a professional stuntman. Uh, that being said, you know, a, a daredevil is great. Evil Knievel was the greatest daredevil ever. Um, daredevils usually do things on their own to glorify themselves, and they're not exactly sure of the outcome. They do it basically once sometimes and hope for the best. A professional stuntman, however, works quietly as a team. I mean, I the, the beginning of my film, I say, you don't see my face. Right. And, and there's a reason. I'm the face you never see. And I like that. Um, being a stuntman, you also work as a, uh, as a team with many other uh, professionals. And it's not there to glorify yourself. You're there to, to, for the bigger picture, the art form. And preferably, it's something you can repeat. It's got a calculated outcome again and again and again. Right. Um, you know, there was a very good reason why I named my rocket the evil spirit and not the Eddie Braun. Um, I didn't do it really for me. I did it to honor and homage to the, the man that inspired me to be a stuntman in the first place, which was Mr. Evil Knievel. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to talk about your, um, you know, your, your flight over the Snake River Canyon. Before we get to that, you know, again, the, I, it's my own curiosity. It's just, uh, you know, the, the stunt performer is, is uh, something that is a curiosity is that, you know, there are some of the stunts that you've done that were particularly unique or special or memorable that, um, that you'd like to talk about? Eh, you know, I, I, it's weird because I, I don't really, I, I look at my work as a, as a whole body. There's no real sure. particular stunts. In fact, in my home, uh, there is not one photo on any wall of me doing a stunt. I have no glory wall. I have, there, there's no stunt pictures in my entire house. And it's always been like that. I, it, it's the body of the work in the whole that I, I mean, certainly there's particular stunts that I go, oh, crap, I'd never do that again. Or, but it's not, for me, it's not about that. It's more about um, projects that I'm really proud, films that I'm proud that I was a, a small part of. It's, it's more like that rather sure. than a particular stunt. Well, I know you've got a pretty impressive resume. You've been in the business for a long time. You've worked on a lot of TV shows and, and, and films and so forth. So uh, yeah, you've obviously been able to do it well and continue doing it. So if you've been a professional stuntman, then what inspired you to then try to recreate this stunt, which, uh, you know, 1974, the Snake River Jump, which, you know, did not go well for, uh, for Evil Knievel. He had a number of his, his big uh, stunts that didn't go very well. So what inspired you to try and 
um, you know, make a successful well, launch? Well, let me start out by being very clear. There is only one evil Knievel, and I certainly am not him, uh, nor would I ever try to be him. Um, I, I never looked at this project as doing what it, evil Knievel couldn't. In fact, that bristles me when I hear that. Uh, you know, if a relief pitcher comes in in the eighth inning, it doesn't mean that the other pitchers before him were failures. They just, the, the relief pitcher just finishes that, it out and they're collectively as a team are hopefully victorious. For me, Evil Knievel uh, inspired a, a complete generation. And at the end of my career as a, as a nodding uh, homage, what better way to pay homage than to finish out the dream of my hero. I mean, how many people have the opportunity to say they completed the dreams of their hero? I'd venture to guess not many. So how did you, how did this project get started? I mean, that's a pretty ambitious undertaking, so. Oh, it is more ambitious than I could have ever, ever imagined. I mean, I, I, I felt like I bit off way more than I could chew. So I just started chewing like crazy. It was, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I looked at this and believe me, I'm not the only person that ever thought of finishing this out. There's been multitudes of, of people that are bigger, much bigger names than a no-name stuntman named Eddie Braun. I mean, you've got these big daredevils that really wanted, in fact, even uh, like Robbie Knievel uh, wanted to finish this out. The thing about it is I went at this with the, mindset of a stunt coordinator for a bit. I just figured this was a giant uh, action sequence in a feature film. You know, I was very fortunate enough to be the stunt coordinator of all three of the Jackie Chan Rush Hour films. And we had some very elaborate stunts in there. And, and you know, you had to put your mind to it to figure out how to do it, how to be able to replicate it and do it safely. So I started this whole project. Um, it was actually born in, in a kitchen. The, the idea for all this uh, was born in a, a buddy's kitchen, drinking a bottle of wine with my business partner, Steve Golubiowski and, uh, and Charlie Sheen. It was in his kitchen. I said, you know, since I'm going out, uh, I'm starting to wind down my uh, you know, stunt career what a better, what, how, what grander, better, cooler mic drop could it be than to finish out the dream of my hero? So uh, as we consume more wine, and, and I'll tell you what, I know the exact day. It was September of 2013 is when we came up with this in Charlie's Kitchen. And I said, if I could do this, this would be a great thank you and thank you, uh, Mr. Evil Knievel for inspiring me and let me finish out what you started. So it was uh, in the kitchen that this was born. And along with that is, uh, was uh, Steven said, well, listen, if you're gonna do this, you know, we gotta film it. He says, of course. So <laughs> in September of 2013 became the odyssey of trying to, to uh, you know, finish out Mr. Evil Knievel's dream. I could never understand why he did not go out to finish it. After, after climbing in that rocket, I get it. I yeah. completely get it. Well, <laughs> never tried it again. I wouldn't do it again. I mean, it was just uh, insane. 
So how, you know, so obviously a big part of this is, is the vehicle itself, the rocket powered, you know, cycle. So is it, he had the sky cycle. How did your, you know, well, vehicle differ and sort of, and what were you trying to do to overcome some of the limitations he dealt with? Well, I started after that drunken binge of coming up with the idea in Charlie's Kitchen. Uh, you know, I've been very, uh, I've always been a, a, a social media guy, just looking up, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Anyways, back then I was, you know, a member of Facebook and people started to hear about that, that I was going to try this, or at least I was talking about it. And I, I came across a guy on Facebook named Scott Truax. Well, Scott Truax happened to be the son of Bob Truax, the, the original builder of Evil's Rocket, Bob Truax. Well, his son, Scott, who's about my age, was on Facebook. And uh, so I wrote him a, a private message saying, hey, we got to talk. Uh, so he got hold of me. And after I showed him, it took a little bit to convince him I was legit. Uh, he, and he's a sweetheart of a man. He said, listen, I've got all my dad's original plans and I've got spare parts to wow. the rocket. So, you know, theoretically, if you wanted to, to pay for it and get it going, we could build the exact duplicate. I mean, fit form and finish and use a lot of the, the spare parts. Well, I pondered that a little bit. And I thought if I were going to do it, I would have to do it original, just like Evil Knievel did. Because, you know, listen, certainly with computers and carbon fiber, and you could, you could cross that canyon with a jetpack these days. It wouldn't right. be a big deal. However, however, if you did it OG, like original gangster style with the original the same way, Right. That, that's going to raise some eyebrows. I mean, it's like the, the extreme sports today. I, in fact, I spent the weekend with uh, Travis Pastrana. I was lucky enough to spend the weekend with him in Atlanta. And we briefly talked about that is, you know, these days, these incredible, incredible feats that these people are doing uh, are incredible. But for me being an old dinosaur and like old school, <laughs> if you did those things, uh, on a Harley or a, a, a one of those old school motorcycles, you'd really get my attention because, um, you know, back then with the technology of 1974 is when this rocket was designed by Bob Truax. Um, so that intrigued me when Scott had told me we could do it exactly. That, that really got my gears going. Um, and that's what set the Odyssey again in September of 2013, I started this whole odyssey. Um, and in this day and age, you do not realize how difficult it is to launch a missile across a canyon dealing with government agencies, homeland security, and God knows what. It was oh, I'm uh, sure. quite uh, quite a overambitious, audacious thing. But I had told, at that point, I told people I was going to do it. Uh, and as a professional stuntman, if you say you're going to do something, you better do it or you're going to lose a lot of credibility. Sure. So the, the rocket itself, I mean, did you, so you rebuilt a, you know, to the original specs? Yep. Fit, form, and finish. Exactly. Wow. Now, now in, in, when uh, Evil Knievel's uh, attempt, he had a, a malfunction with the parachute. Is that correct? So how yeah, that, that's probably the most important component. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, what's worse than, uh, 
getting a car that that won't start is yeah. getting a car that won't stop. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, launching yeah. a rocket, a lot of people can launch a rocket. The trick is to to recover the rocket in one piece. Right. Um, and so that was a very, we really had to put our brains behind it. And quite honestly, a lot of luck because this had never been done before. And here I was trying to do something that had never been done before to the specs of 1974. So there were no computers, you know, on board this rocket. There was no, there's a bunch of, the thing was built with duct tape and a ball peen <laughs> hammer basically in, in a, a, a garage. So tell us a little bit about how this rocket is, you know, what it, some of its specs are in terms of its weight, its horsepower, and how this and this jump took place, because that's not something a lot of us know about, so. Nor do I. I mean, listen, <laughs> thank God for Scott Truax. Here's the thing. In essence, it uh, first of all, it's powered by hot water, steam, okay? Steam is very powerful. We built a country on steam, you know, the locomotives. Though. So steam is no joke. Uh, basically, I'll put it in layman's term, terms. This was a beer keg, basically, uh, with a stopper on it and <laughs> filled with 77 gallons of water at a super high temperature at about uh, 77 gallons of water at, I think, like 650 degrees at 500 PSI, basically. So it was a, basically, it wasn't a beer keg, but it was an oxygen tank to an old B-52 bomber. So it could hold the pressure. It was a, it was almost like a lawn chair uh, duct tape to a beer keg. <laughs> that, that's what Evil Knievel did. I mean, it was steam. That's all it was, is hot water. And I gotta tell you, when I hit the, pop the cork on that thing, it was uh, instant uh, over 10,000 horsepower, uh, which took me to 439 miles an hour in less than three seconds. Wow. So how, it, how much, how, how much pressure, how much, you know, the, the G force is that? It was instant eight G. So it wasn't a gradual like fighter pilots that you have a G suit. Right. This was like riding an explosion. Uh, wow. It was, I, 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 the first thing I thought of the minute I hit that button was, oh shit. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like I got a face punch, an instant face punch. And before my brain caught up with what was going on, I was already going, you know, over 400 miles an hour and I was 3,000 feet in the air and hauling ass. So how far is the, the gap that you had to cover? Well, here's the thing that's really interesting. When I saw the, the, the canyon for the first time, it's a quarter mile wide, about 1,600 feet wide. Okay. It looks huge. And it's also about five or 600 feet deep. So I said, my God, how am I going to cross this and not be like wily e. Coyote splatting on the other side? However, when I launched the rocket, the rocket cleared the canyon in the first second. Uh, the <laughs> rocket went about... 5,200 and something feet, which is about a mile. So I literally cleared the canyon by a mile. And so how did you, how's, how do you land something like this? Did you obviously yeah. have a parachute, but I don't know how yeah. you don't just auger in like a lawn dart. So yeah. then came the really terrifying thing is slowing this thing down. So we had uh, what's called a drogue chute um, because you cannot open a parachute 
at that speed, it'll shred it like a, a, a you know, it'll just shred the chute and yeah. you'll come augering in like a lawn dart. So I launched a drogue chute and then I counted, I was told to count to 10 and then open the main chute and, and hopefully all that would work. That's what we hoped and prayed. So, um, so this, this early shoot slowed you down enough to deploy a traditional parachute as well. Correct. Gotcha. But, but even then, even de deploying the main chute, I'm still coming in really, really fast. And two things were coming through my mind. One is I'm either going to shatter both my legs, have two massive compound fractures, or I'm going to be decapitated because <laughs> the rocket was an open cockpit vehicle. So my, my shoulders and, and chest and shoulders and head were actually outside of this thing. And that open cockpit happens to be the weakest part of the rocket. So the chance was always that if I hit hard enough, the rocket would fold in half, thereby cutting me off at the head and shoulders. So even when the main parachute opened, I was still coming in very fast and praying, go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I mean, you know, I'm either going to break my legs or get cut in half. It wasn't until I finally landed and took a moment to realize, well, my legs don't seem broken and my head's still on my shoulders. Then did I realize, wow, I actually made it. And did you land safely? No injuries to speak of? Um, yeah, well, yeah, to speak of no injuries. I mean, yes, I, I landed unscathed. However, um, as the days progressed for three days, I was peeing blood. Mm. And I, I and feeling horrible every day progressively. I felt worse and worse. So on the third day, I went to see a, a doctor, and they did ran tests, and I did some damage internally to my organs, the G forces, uh, to my liver. Wow. But fortunately, uh, that's no more damage than I've done in all my partying. So, <laughs> so the, my doctor said, "You'll get over. It. You'll pee blood for a few days, and then you'll be fine." Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't a pleasant experience at all. In fact, the night of uh, celebration with all my friends, I was actually in the hotel room uh, early throwing up and peeing blood. It was oh. awful. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I can only imagine, like you said, since all of that pressure hit you instantaneously and you didn't have a, a G suit or anything like that, but that you didn't sustain a concussion or any broken bones. I mean, you mentioned Travis Pastrana earlier and that guy has blown out his knees. I don't know how many times on a lot of different things. And so that you, you avoided any serious injury is, is, is pretty amazing. Well, well let's be honest. Uh, you know, Scott Truax and myself had never done this before. So we were, you know, we were like two, two uh, guys trying to figure this out, but Scott built a, or actually Scott's father, Bob Truax designed a wonderful rocket. Scott built it, you know, perfectly. And it performed, had that shoot not come out early um, for Mr. Knievel, we wouldn't be here talking about it right now. You know? right. Uh, so you said you approached this, you know, uh, like a stunt coordinator. So obviously you've done as much planning. Uh, you've got somebody, engineers, trying to sort of figure out your trajectory and how to slow this thing down. But there still is a big sort of well, question mark or there's a big you know like well we hope it all works out that way i mean well greg here's the main things i was fighting first of all i paid for it all and I, i'm not a rich man uh, i was spending my money so i had to cut a lot of corners you would never cut i mean uh 
everybody said, oh God, you got to put an automatic like shoot deployment device inside. I said, A, I can't afford it. Right. And, and B, I just better have my wits about me to, to pull my shoots myself. Right. Fortunately though, all of my experience as a stuntman came into play. I, I treated this like it was just another day at work. When I was in the rocket sitting there waiting, I just, in my head, I told myself, I'm on the set. This is going to be a stunt that I'm going to perform. And, and that's what kept me pretty cool headed. Uh, and I didn't freak out too much. I figured, well, okay, I've been in this situation before as far as having to keep, you really got to focus and, and keep a cool head and not let uh, the emotional uh, the emotional wherewithal, you know, there was a second there as I was climbing into the rocket, I thought, wow, I, I wonder if this is how Mr. Knievel felt when he was climbing in. I, you know, everybody's watching from a very safe distance, about a mile away, half a mile away, people are watching. And I did for a second think, wow, as I sat in that rocket, that was the lunchbox that as a child, I would eat my lunch and look at the pictures every day. And for this moment, I'm living it which was really weird. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, not only to have met one of your heroes, but then to basically, you know, to, to pay honor to him and homage by, by doing this stunt in essentially the same rocket that he was in. Um, you know, I just can't help but think myself as, you know, you, because I guess you had to deploy the shoot. You, it didn't happen automatically. You did not black out. So you basically relied on your experience on knowing that, okay, I've, I know I've got to do this in order that for this to be a sex, successful um, attempt. But just the fear response that I would think most of us would, would feel is that that's something I guess you must have learned to manage over your career is that fear has a place. But it, I imagine you're talking about the emotional component, like it could get in the way of of doing your job successfully and safely. Well, Greg, uh, you know, I have four, four kids and I've often told them when I go to work, I I'm scared all the time. Believe me, uh, there's no macho in me. I'm scared of many things. And I tell my kids, listen, there is nothing wrong with being scared. That's normal. In fact, that's healthy. It's how one manages how they react to the fear that define them as a person, you know, uh, I've always said that I tell my kids, you know, the, the road is paved with flat squirrels that couldn't make a decision one way or another. <laughs> Won't be a flat squirrel, you know, make a decision and stick with it. Um, so I'm scared all the time when I go to work. I just, I just try to stay as calm as I can and work through that fear because that will define the person that you are. I've always said, be maverick, not uh, cougar. You know? right. <laughs> always, always be maverick. Don't be cougar. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, in the world of, you know, motorcycling and so forth, it's as you well know, is that you've been riding since you were a kid. Sometimes you just have to commit. If you go in uncertain yeah. and scared, you're, it's, that's when you're going to make mistakes. You have to commit and uh, it's usually going to work out better that way, you know, so. Absolutely. Without question. In fact, uh, in like this whole project I committed, I, I almost named my company No Plan B because <laughs> I had no plan B. It was all plan A or nothing. Uh, there was no plan B. I, this was full commitment, full commitment of my reputation, full commitment of my finances, and ultimately full commitment of my life. Well, uh, congratulations on, you know, seeing that through. That's, that's great. So what I want to know is, there, tell us a little bit about this um, documentary, Stuntman. Well, I, I listen, 
I had never, when I, when Stephen, my partner, Steve Goldenbiasi and Kurt Mantilla, the director, all three of us got together and said, okay, we've got all this footage. Uh, let's try and make a movie out of it. I never in my wildest dreams, A, thought I'd ever be the subject of a movie, uh, let alone be the subject of a movie that is now a Disney movie with The Rock as executive producer. I, you know, they released this movie in 63 countries to over 200 million people. Wow. I had no idea that that is what would be the end result. Uh, or I, I, I probably thank God I didn't know because I would have been petrified and probably messed the whole thing up. Uh, but ultimately, it started with the fact a, if I was going to do it, I was doing it internally first for myself and for my family. I wanted to show my kids that if you worked really hard, you could, you could, you know, in fact, when I came back from Twin Falls, one of the first things my daughter said at dinner with all of us sitting there, my daughter said, dad, I guess it's going to be really hard for us to say we can't do something when we just watched our dad finish out the dream of his hero. Absolutely. So, so I did it first and foremost, I did it for my family and for myself. It was an internal thing. I didn't care if five people saw it or 5,000 people saw it. That's not what this whole thing was about from, from Jump Street, from day one. It was always about uh, doing it. You know, Evil Knievel left some great inspirational quotes and things, which, you know, I live by some of them. One of them was, he said, uh, that you have to be willing to jump the canyon for nothing before you'll do it for anything. And that's so true. I saw in the course of this, once this snowball started getting bigger, all these people from left field, I want to jump it. Oh, I'm going to jump it. They got to pay me a million dollars and I'll jump it. Or I want a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to jump it. And then I thought, I must be an idiot because I'm just doing it for me. I'm doing it for a home movie, basically. Uh, and I, I, you know, it did hurt. I was mocked and ridiculed sometimes uh, in a lot of it silently. This fool's just doing it for nothing just to do it. But it wasn't for nothing. It was for the internal satisfaction uh, of doing it. And sometimes, at least to me, the internal integrity and... Yeah. The, is priceless. How, how do you put a price on a fantasy? Uh, you just don't. So I started by doing this for myself and my family, and I didn't really care about everybody else. And at the end of the day, that's what kept me uh, moving forward. And, and that's why I prevailed. Everybody else was still stuck at the starting line, wanting a paycheck. Uh, and I must have been the only idiot that just wanted to do it to honor the the man that inspired me. Um, well, there's a lot of purity to that. You know, it wasn't necessarily like a Red Bull sponsored, you know, a, a yeah, stunt I mean, or something like that. I mean, you know, it was, uh, but also, you know, you were saying that, you know, you've had a successful career as a, as a professional stuntman. You've, um, as you said, you're often behind the scenes, you know, you're, it's not really about your individual recognition, but um, as a, you know, true highlight or capstone to a successful career. And then to have this documentary about it is, uh, you know, that's a way to share it with uh, a wider audience. Even if that wasn't your original intention, that's, that's great. People often ask me, well, how's the movie? And, and I got to tell you, how, you know, it's a movie about me. How do I tell you how the movie is? <laughs> I don't know. 
I can't tell you whether it's good and I can't tell you whether it's bad. However, I can tell you one thing. I am very proud of what's there, whether it's good or bad or however it's interpreted. I'm very proud of every frame of footage. And I was also involved in every minutia, every detail, uh, because originally I was just doing it for me. Uh, for instance, uh, partially through once the momentum was going, well, then of course, everybody's your friend and everybody wants to be part of it. Once they see you're going, I was offered, uh, close to a million dollars for my parachute for it to be an advertisement, a million dollars. I mean, that is a shit ton of money. <laughs> and I'm not a rich guy. I'm thinking, God, if I, they, they want to put an advertisement. And my original intent from day one was I did not want a standard parachute. I wanted the American flag. That's all I wanted. The evil right. Knievel was all about America. I am blessed and fortunate to have been born in the United States. I am a proud flag waving, saluting, standing for the flag. I wanted the American flag as my parachute. That's it, end of period, the end of story. So it meant some hard decisions like turning down close to a million dollars because at the end of the day, the statement that I wanted to make to my family and to my friends were I wanted it to be as pure as could be, as American as could be, as unsponsored, uncorporate. Right. I mean, right. this was like, you know, uh, just America, red, white, and blue, as pure as could be. Uh, so I wanted the American flag. I, that detail, uh, that was just one of the many details that I, I, so the movie, I think, captures all of that. It's very pure, it's raw. Uh, I'm not an actor. I mean, there's a very good reason I'm a stuntman and not an actor, as you'll, you can probably tell if you see the film. Uh, I'm very un-Hollywood, even though I work in Hollywood. But the film, I will say, I'm very proud of it. it. Hopefully, the film will outlast me, even, and it'll be in the Disney library forever. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting, like I said, you have a body of work that even if you're not, you know, somebody who is 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 known by face or name as, as much as as, you know, some actor or something, but you know you have a body of work that you can always you know refer back to that your family can you know uh and so forth but to have this documentary that's as really as a as a um as a way to really you know honor your career and and your achievements i mean it's got to be humbling and so that's 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 great it's very um yeah it's very humbling i mean it's it's you know i just all i can say is i i poured my like soul, my finances, my rep, everything into this project. Uh, and I think the film captures it. There's one thing I'm really proud of in today's age of CGI, which is computer generated imagery, these superhero movies, all of it is, most of it is smoke and mirrors and fake. And it's okay. I mean, people love it and, and God bless them. I'm a more of a purist. I like old school and I will say one thing about my movie. There is not one, not one frame of CGI or computer enhanced. Every stunt you see in my movie is real, right. real time, real everything. In fact, the rocket launch, we got so lucky in that all the cameras captured it. There's stuff in there you're going to go, son of a gun, is that real or did they just enhance it? No, every frame of foot, every single frame of footage is original, 
it's unenhanced. It is the way it is. And I, I'm proud of that too. My film is very, it may look uh, like an antique archaic dinosaur, but it's real. And I'm very proud of that. So how do people check out uh, The Stuntman? Uh, if they care to see it, it is on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's in there. You just find it, put in Stuntman. And, okay. uh, and hopefully they enjoy it. I mean, like I said, whether you think it's good or bad, that I'll leave that to you. However, just know that I tried my best in that film. I, I laid it all out there. So at the very least, you get the authentic, unpolished, unvarnished, truth at least out of me my truth um and that's all i can promise you uh, i can't promise whether you like it or not but if you like it you know send me a message i'm on social media find okay. me and, uh you know i'm on facebook and instagram find me and say hey good movie or hey i want my money back so <laughs> I can't give me your money back because it's right. disney's film now right, but, yeah, right if you like the film uh, you'll know that it's pure and shoot me a message. I'm very, I'm like a regular schmuck. I'm very accessible. Thanks, Eddie. Well, hey, it's, I really enjoyed talking to you. You have a really interesting story and you've got a, a, a great career that uh, I encourage everybody to, you know, go out and check out the uh, Stuntman if you can get it on Disney+. Plus. Um, anything else you want to share with folks before we sign off? No, I mean, I, I think, Greg, first of all, Greg, thanks for having me. It's, it's humbling to be on Writer, Writer Magazine. I mean, something, like I said, that I used to cut pictures out of. So that's humbling. <laughs> uh, for everybody listening, I would just say, hey, you know, I'm just like everybody else. There's nothing, there's a reason I'm a stuntman and not an actor. I'm like a regular guy. And I would just say, go out and if you have something you want to go, just go for it, man. You don't exactly have to have a game plan. You just have to commit and uh, and go for it. And, you know, you, you may fail. Evil Knievel was more famous for his failures than he was for his successes. I yeah. mean, had he not crashed at Caesar's Palace, we probably would have never heard of him. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Just don't, don't be afraid to go for it, you know? Well, those are definitely good words to live by. Again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have links in the show notes uh, for the, the stuntman. Uh, for Eddie Braun, uh, again, uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, Thank you for having me. And one other quick note. If you guys do like the film, Disney really went out on a limb. You'll notice that the movie is a little unlike most of their programming. So if you see Stuntman on Disney+, Plus. Somehow let them know you liked it because my film Stuntman uh, is a film that they acquired. They did not make and they, they're taking a chance, but they're watching it very closely. So if you happen to like the film, somehow let them know because that's they're going to they're a business and they're going to go after the content uh, of what the people want. So if you guys uh like Stuntman or something like that, let Disney know and they'll hopefully make more movies that are just normal people doing some, trying to do some cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.